Father, I thank you that that's a word for, for our time. Father, I pray that it's a, a growing reality in all of our hearts. Lord, to some measure we may know that. Some to one, some to a greater. But Father, we know you're limitless so we can know it ever more. And Father, I ask, I pray this morning as, as I share what's in my heart that we can hear with a heart understanding that you're a good, good Father. That your desire for us is for our good and to lead us ever more into you. So thank you for this morning. I thank you for every, everyone, for all the dear ones that are here. Lord, that have a heart to you, they're here. And they have a heart for you. So pray this morning. Lord, pour out your spirit. Grant us ears to hear and eyes to see that you are a good, good father and your desire for us is good. So I ask and pray in your son's precious name. Yeshua HaMashiach, our saviour, the anointed one, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Thanks for lip reading well, Clay. <laughs> You know, it's, um, it's quite a funny thing for me where I'm at right now. And I was sharing with Greg that uh, for a long time, for years, ever since really I, I well, I'll say this, so I gave my heart to the Lord. I mean, I grew up in a Catholic family, so I had a sort of a Christian awareness from as long as I can remember. But watching my beautiful wife humble herself in front of me at the risk of losing such an amazing treasure. <laughs> no, but seriously, you know, we, we were engaged and uh, there was a little um, theological debate going on <laughs> between <laughs> Catholicism and uh, perhaps a, a Protestant leading, le- leaning. And uh, Though we didn't really understand what was going on at the time, you know, God was shaping, was doing a work deep within, and and Anne was at a point where she's saying, "I know that I know that I know I've got to give my heart to Jesus Christ, and no other theological cling-ons. <laughs> That's all I know, and so I've got to do it." And so she invited me to come with her. She was um, working in a, in a group with a, 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 a not Campus Crusaders, um, Campus Crusaders, Open Air Christ, evangelistic group anyway. And so the guy said, I know what you've got to do, go get Paul. And uh, so with actual fear and trembling, I mean, why would you? <laughs> she went and got me. 
And if you knew me then, you knew why. You would know why. And so she she brought me up to to um, talk with her and, and uh, Ian Ian Miller. And he, he just answered a few basic questions. Said, "Wayne, you know what you've got to do." And she got on her knees, and she just gave her heart to the Lord and with tears and repentance. And I was thinking, well, that's strange. I've never seen that before. Not in any of the services I've been to. But that looks powerful. I've got to do that. And so in my own version of it, went away to what I knew. I went, went to confession and uh, at a Catholic church and then went to, at the, just in the pews there. I did the same thing myself. But I know from that point forward that he's been working my life and I was going to do something for him. And that is where I want to be. And I've got something to tell the world and you better hear it. Because you know, it's good. It's all about Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. It's going to be good. And yet, to my embarrassment, for 30 years, an ever patient, ever gentle, ever caring, good, good father is chipping away, helping me to see something that's in my way. And so, in relatively a um, you know, short time from now, going backwards, I mean, in the, in the recent past, God's opened my eyes to something that I couldn't, couldn't see. Now, it doesn't mean that everything was previous was no good or chucked the baby out with the bathwater, but it was a realisation. It's something that the Lord has brought me in and, and been unpacking within me and, and revealing to my heart and I am so grateful to him for it. So grateful and I am so grateful to such precious dear ones to walk with that we all get to encourage and support and walk with each other as each one because it's God who brings the revelation. So now who am I to try and bash it into Kirk? And he calls me to love Kirk. By the way that's easy to do. So it is with fear and trembling that I actually stand, stand here to share. She's something that's, that's on my heart. You know, and I, was, I was telling Greg, I, I'd actually rather run a million miles away. So for someone who would be chomping at the bit to stand here and, and let you have it, tell you all about chapter and verse, to, to have wrestled with the Lord to say, I don't want to do it. I really don't. And yet, I know it's testimony to the very thing that he's doing within me. So my heart is that perhaps you can hear and perhaps something that he's been sharing with, with me may resonate with you. And like the tuning fork, it might ring true and go, yeah, Lord, you're saying something deep within here that I need to respond to. So it may be a very short message, <laughs> it might be very long, but we'll see how we go. But Father, I ask and I do pray that as, as I share that your word, what is from you is heard, what is from me just falls away, but what is living water wells up from within and brings life. There are some notes in that and, and actually I, I'm going to try and do this from here. I've, I've, I've walked it and I've prayed it 
And please have grace if I get the scripture as Rochelle, God bless her, picked up my, my errors in my notes. So if you, if you find some scripture verses that send you off in a wild view chase somewhere, <laughs> nothing's wasted. Take it as an opportunity to swim around in his word and let him speak to you. Okay? That's how you cover your errors, everybody. <laughs> so, how this started was in walking with eldership and walking um, closely with Greg and with the other elders, we've been having um, uh, some messages that have been sent out, and Greg would send out little snippets, and we'd dive into it and read it and then dialogue with each other. And one of the things that's been just ringing true is this whole um, understanding of um, what is the power of God. And, I, and I've fought with that because, I mean, in my mind and my thinking forever, the power of God has got to be this, this manifest demonstration of the power of God. You know, Shorabura Honda, got a Kawasaki, <coughs> there's the healing. You know, wow, an arm grew back, there's the power of God. How is it with the power of God? Ten lepers are healed. Only one returns. You know, I suggest perhaps the power of God was being manifested in the one. You know, the demonstration of God's sovereignty and who he is over everything was shown throughout the ten, but the power of God was being manifested in the one because something else was taking place. So as I've struggled with this and as I've been seeking the Lord about and asking it, and, and that's where I wanted to be, is demonstrating the power of God. Well, actually, it'll be the power of God. It'll be like that. Over the ten. Then, then they'll be there with the power of God and that'll, they'll be doing a great thing for him. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's going to be good. As long as we put in Jesus' name, amen, at the end of it, then it must be from him. So as I started looking at this, and we had some readings out of, um, out of Deuteronomy and I've been swimming around in in the Old Testament for, for quite a while now and just um, uh, just taking different things as God's speaking to my heart and he's building upon stuff that I've read over 30 plus years. And as I was approached this in a different posture, God was revealing something to me, something to my heart and it was like a, a macadamia nut or a walnut cracking open. And I was thinking, my God. And I felt like, you know, you know, if you've read when Thomas, you know, he says, oh, well, I'm not going to believe him. I'm going to poke my finger in the holes in his side or his hands or something. No, I'm not going to believe it. Then Jesus appears. And he says, uh, Tom, here you go. Poke your fingers in. And Thomas' response was, my Lord, my God. And just falls at his feet. And it's when, 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 the Lord brings revelation to, to your heart. That's what I was feeling. I just I had that sense of like Thompson. Oh my God, my Lord, how could I not see this? Well, because it's not from you, Paul. I bring the revelation. I'm looking for that heart posture that's going to be in the right place to be able to receive what I want to share and what I want to give you. So as I was looking in this and I was reading through and particularly through uh, Deuteronomy 8 and Deuteronomy 9. And uh, I read on through there, it was just talking about just the, the following 
God's ways effectively and where he was wanting to take his people, what he was wanting for them to receive. And I was looking at this, it was just suddenly it dawned on me as I was reading. It says, I'm talking about you, Paul. And I looked at this and for me it was just like a light being switched on. This was no longer an Old Testament reading. This was no longer an historical account. This was no longer a set of instructions that I must follow. This was something that he was saying, I'm speaking to you, to you, Paul. This is about you. This is a typology. It's a picture that I'm painting for you to see. I need you to look at this and then see how this applies to your life. Now, please hear me. I don't want to discount any of that, what I've just said. Clearly, they are historical accounts. Well, perhaps some people may, may not agree. Um, and clearly, there is some, some uh, instruction and there's teaching this there for us to learn on and to, to work through. But this is what the Lord was speaking to me about. And so, as I read that and as I read through Deuteronomy, as I then went forward, because he's talking about going into a promised land. And straight away, the Lord spoke to me about the kingdom of God. And where, so where's the kingdom of God? It's in us. So in this typology, in this picture he's sharing with me, he's saying, well, where's, so where's the promised land, Paul? Where's the promised land I'm talking to you about? Uh, maybe that's me. Mm. So I want you to think about something. Look at what happened when they enter into the promised land. There was a process. I wanted to get them from Egypt into the promised land. That journey, even on feet, well, yeah, even on your feet with a bunch of lambs, doesn't take 40 years. Not unless something goes a little awry in between. So I wanted to, to take my people from here to there, but something happened in between. So I went back to look at the scripture and said, oh, well, look, what, so, okay, well, what happens? You get them, you go through the, um, the children of Israel being in, um, in Egypt and they're growing in numbers there. And I said, oh, look, there's a few things that just seem, I don't know, coincidental. So look at Moses and look at Jesus. Moses disappears for 40 years into the wilderness. God's preparing his heart. Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days. He's tempted, he's prepared. And having, having you know, learned obedience through the things he suffered and having been made perfect, he was then able to be the sacrifice for us. So I'm thinking, no, there's, there's a few things that seem to be aligning here for me to know about what's going on in here and why you've done these things. So then he says, okay, so what do I do? I demonstrate. So Moses comes back and he, honestly, he might as well have talked to him about Peter Pan and Fairyland or something. Because he's telling them about a reality, something that God has spoken to him about. For them, they've been, how many years? Prisoners? 400 odd years. They don't know about the promised land. No one's been there and seen it. Moses is here telling them about it. They're slaves spending the day tromping around in mud and someone's telling you about there's a place to go to that's flowing with milk and honey. He says, oh yeah, good on you. <laughs> nice one. Okay, so but then the Lord's, 
uh, uh, Moses then is demonstrating with the miracles that this is beyond, this is not just a fairy tale. This is reality. Jesus comes and he's telling us about the kingdom of God. There's a richness and a treasure. There are streams of life-giving water that will flow from within. So you, you drink of me, you'll never be thirsty again. This sounds like fairy tale to me. This is what you're talking about. You know, eat me. Uh, yeah, good on you. There's a kingdom, there's a fullness, there's a treasure that's beyond measure. There's a kingdom that has come and is coming. Uh, It's not my reality. It wasn't their reality either. They sealed it with miracles. Well, he sealed it with miracles. Maybe there's something I need to hear in this. As they then trusted and believed in him, he then calls them out and says, we're going to go. Hebrews talks about them being baptised into Moses and as we read the accounts, it says that Moses stands there and all the stuff that that takes place for him to get there, the Red Sea parts and it seemed to me to be quite significant between what happens there and what happens 40 years later. This is the Red Sea parts and the walls of water stand up and they pass through. That's where we get this understanding of the the, the baptising because you're passing under or through the big walls of water. I always wonder if it's amazing if you could have gone like that or gone, seen fish or something, but anyway. Um, so they passed through. When they get to the other side, the enemy is trying to pass through, but the walls of water collapse on top of them and the enemy is cut off. There's now a barrier between them and what was the enemy camp. In a sense, they can't go back and the enemy can't get to them. The enemy's just been destroyed and wiped out. One way for them now is to go forward. So they are then to go forward. So we, in a sense, have that opportunity that we're baptised. That's the symbolism that we go through when we're baptised in the Spirit, baptised in water, and we go right under. In the sense that there's a spiritual dynamic that takes place that says the enemy is cut off. He has been destroyed. He's behind. It's a step of faith that's got to believe that this is the case. And if we start from the place of that song that says you're a good, good father, then we're understanding that the things we're going forward to is good for me. It's not going to be bad for me. So I look back and say, well, okay, what's happening then between the passing through of the the Red Sea and getting to where they really wanted to get to was the promised land, Straight away they then go into a wilderness or a desert sort of place. And you think, oh, okay, well here we go. <laughs> Remember he's, he's just demonstrated his love and his power and I'm, anyone here seen an ocean split in two? I mean they just did. And so next thing, within a couple of days, a few days, they're thirsty, they're mumbling, they're groaning Oh, what are you doing? We'd better be back in Egypt and die back in Egypt. Now, God's arranging this to happen. And he's not for him and not for just because he was, oh, I know what I'll do, I'll tick them off. <laughs> I'll turn the tap off. That'll, that'll get him upset. It's not like that. Remember, he's a good, good father. He's teaching them something. 
I need to test your hearts to see where you're at so you can see where you're at. So you can understand what your responses are. So you know what you are like. I need to humble you. Because, oh, he says you're a stiff-necked person, Paul, and you don't see it. You bow before me like this. This look. <laughs> Might not look like on the outside. Might look like this for everyone else who's looking at me. But the real me will be like this inside, demonstrated not by the power of God, which is a demonstration of the one who came back humbly before the Lord to give thanks. It's a, it's a, the power of God is a demonstration of, of God at work within me. So then my physical actions will actually align to what's happening within inside of me. So here's the Lord doing this for the people. Now again, you would think, you've just seen, you'd seen a jolly ocean split in two. You'd think you might have got the picture. But I didn't. So as, as they continue through that journey, God's revealing himself to them. There's tests that come upon them, again, for their good. And I love it. I mean, I've seen some images. They, they um, talk about, you know, when they're all thirsty and they've got no water. He says, well, actually, get them around the rock. You know, get you to stand. I want you to hit the rock, the rock of flint. When you think about it, there's, some say there's up to about, I don't know, maybe three million people, even if it was 100,000. There's still a lot of people. But let's say there were three million. It wasn't just three million. If each person's got a goat, well, suddenly there are six million. If each person's got a goat and a lamb, now it's getting beyond my maths. But that's a lot of million. Okay? And that's a lot of thirsty people. And I know for sure, one thing I know for sure, absolute fact, no one was passing these around. For the benefit of those who are listening, that's a plastic bottle. <laughs> so they're thirsty. So he strikes the rock. Now I've seen a picture of what they believe is probably that, that rock. It's this massive big outcrop that is just cleaved in two like this. And then there's a big valley below. And it says the water would have just gushed out, just flowed out, poured out. So when you think about it, whether it's 100,000 or 6 million thirsty living beings, it's a lot of water that's needed very quickly. So it would have just poured out. And there are streams of life-giving water that will flow out for thirsty millions once we know and understand that it's the power of God at work in here. And there's a that needed to happen to me to break open this hard shell. So as they're going along, as they get to the point, we know the story that they, the, um, uh, the uh, spies go in and the ten come out and said, no, oh, it's too big, they're big and hairy and scary. And two said, what are you talking about? We can take them. God's, on, God's with us. And then they spend the next 40 years dancing around the wilderness, 
getting ready to come back. You know, in, the, in the wilderness we know, we, we often hear um, the fact that the wilderness is a place of teaching, but we don't actually hear often is, is also it's a place of death. For those that were not to go into the promised land, forgot the ages right, it's 20 and above, they were to die in the desert. For those that were 20 below, they were going to spend the next 40 years wandering around to also witness, not only witness and see their parents and, and all of, you know, the rest of the, the nation die off, they were going to, and they would be learning the lesson as to why that was taking place. By the way, we are also exhorted to understand not to be like that. They didn't enter in because of lack of faith and that was what the result was for them. That it's also a place of humbling and teaching so that the people can see the state of their own heart because of, not because, I'd, well, I've got nothing better to do and we've got billions of light years of time to do whatever I want so for 40 years I'll just muck around with you in the desert. It was, he's a good, good father. His purpose for them is good because there's the promised land that he's desiring for them to be in. He knows what is there. So the testing and the preparedness for them to enter in the promised land was about preparing their hearts to humble you. So the 40 years goes by until they get to the point where they're about to enter the promised land. Moses doesn't get to enter, Jericho does. Uh, uh, Joshua does. Joshua spent, you know, something that comes up a little shortly, but Joshua's just spent all that time um, walking as Moses' right-hand man, witnessing how God is speaking to Moses and how Moses speaks to God because he's going to inherit this aspect to, to move into that promised land himself. And he witnesses Moses talk to God as a friend speaks face-to-face with a friend. He's got that in him. It's being ingrained 40 years. I mean, that's, it's amazing. 40 years of seeing that, of being taught, of being discipled in that way. And you look at his reaction that, of something that crops up a bit later. So they come to this point where they're then going to go into the promised land. And they're ready to go in. So they go send the, the spies out and um, get the information. They end up speaking with um, Rahab. Now this is one of the things as, as I'm reading through all this and God's speaking to me and it's, now look, who she, so who is she? The Rahab, oh, okay, well scripture says she's a harlot, okay. Who is she? Well, it says she's a, you know, look, look, who is she? And I read and her name means pride. And this is the first thing, that he, the first inkling that he's starting to speak to my heart. Mm. Okay. So they go out and then they get the message that they're now going to enter into the promised land. And here's where some of the things change. That is that to enter in, they now to cross over into the promised land. And the Jordan, flood at that time, the time of harvest, it doesn't do that and go up in two walls. It just stops. And the river stops right the way back to a city called Adam. And he was speaking to me, as it were, I've taken it right the way back to the beginning. I give you a new start. You're about, I want you to cross over. Here, 40 years ago, which should have only been a matter of 
probably months, but you passed through in baptism. You're saved. The enemy is cut off from you. You are saved. You've been baptised into me. I have a time where I'm leading you through a bit of a wilderness and through um, a time just to test your hearts for you to reveal reveal so you can see your, your true nature and you can see who I am and my true nature for you. But I want you not in here, I want you to walk and live in the fullness of here. And by the way, the things that I am doing here in the testing, the Lord tells them, when you're going to cross over and get into here, you've got battles. You're saved. Son, you're saved. But you've got battles in your promised land. So don't think yet then, whoa, it's all done. In fact, he says specifically, you're not going to wipe them all out at once. Because if you do, it'll kill you. Because you wipe all those out, the wild animals will increase the number and they'll kill you. So it's for your protection that I'm doing it this way. Okay, it doesn't quite work out the way the wisdom of the world wants it to happen. But the wisdom of God is upside down to the wisdom of the world. So he's preparing our heart in the time of the wilderness for the battles in the promised land. Why? Because he's a good, good father and he wants us to know in the battle he is good. His victory has been won. So when they crossed over, they crossed over the Jordan, the waters receded right the way back. They cross over, the waters come back again, they can't make it back, it's a time of flood, the water floods right up in the embankments and they've got to go forward. And now, as it were, he seals the deal. He says, I know what's been in your hearts. I know how you've thought. But I'm going to do something now that's going to make you remember it. He circumcises them, all the men. In fact, the place gets called Gilgal, Hill Foreskins. You would think going into a place of battle, you might want to be on the other side of the river before you did that. (laughs) However, it's not. It's on that side. Now, all the city-states had seen what had happened, heard what happened. They're all in fear and trembling, but they don't know that. We get to see things in hindsight. They, however, have to take a step of faith that, Lord, you are in control of this. So as that starts to unfold and then the Lord starts to um, unravel his plan to Joshua, it seems to be a little odd because here's the first city and this was asking the Lord and I was crying out, Lord, why, why Jericho? What's important about that? What's the typology? What are you speaking to me about? He says, well, look what happened, son. Oh, well, yeah, I know, I've read the story, you know, I heard a kid's song just the other day, Joshua, battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua, forget it. What's Joshua's name? It's Jesus. It's Jesus was at the battle of Jericho. The other guys just happened to be present. So he says, well, here's what you're going to do. Here's your battle plan. Now, you know, I was, for seven years, a cut-lunch commando. Yeah, I was in the territorials. So we have this big battle plan. We get all our machine gun emplacements. We get our, our, our riflemen in place, make sure we've got all our weapons and our cannons. Maybe we get some air support. And now we're starting to talk. 
He says, yeah, well, here's my plan. What you're actually going to do is you're going to walk around this place um, six days and then you're going to do it seven times on the seventh day, but you're not going to say anything. You're just going to walk quietly around. Might get a few trumpets blasting, but you just walk around it. I'm thinking, uh, yeah, got to. There's a battle plan that'll work. So I was asking the Lord, well, what, what's the deal? They're trying to enter into the promised land. Remember, it's, it's me. He's speaking to me about my promised land, about the kingdom of God sitting in here that's yet to be conquered, to be unraveled, to be unveiled, that I can live in the life that he's trying to bring to me, that there are battles that are going to have to be fought, but it's got to be fought his way, not my way. Because my way is my way or Yahweh. The choice is up to you. I ended up choosing my way, not Yahweh, and it wore me out. And my dear precious wife, I wore her out too. And yet if I'm ready, if I'm allowing him to crack the nut, to allow his fragrance flow out, it's a different place. Believe me, it is an absolutely different place. And he says, what are they going to do when they're going to march for seven times around the, around the city? Oh, that's probably much. That's one. Dips too, getting sick of this. Shh. I don't think so. Each day they get up and they've got to march around the city. They're going to be looking at the city, what they can see of it, and they're going to be doing this. Uh, Okie dokie. Now, the research I've done had a look at, at Jericho. The, the understanding it was it's a bit like a pass site. It was up on a hill. Jericho is reputedly probably the longest continually inhabited city. It's a city state. It was probably several thousand people lived in it. But in those days, it would have been considered a city. Um, continually inhabited city in the world. It's um, at the you know not far from the Dead Sea, so it's sort of at the bottom of the big valley. Uh, it was on a trade route and it was very significant because of the water that was available there. There was a big spring, all the rain and the hills would have flowed down through aquifers and it popped up in a spring there. It was a place of palms, it was a, a place of um, date palms and fragrance. So when you're walking in the wilderness in the desert, it would be an amazing place to be at. And so it had a, this place of significance, particularly leading into, from there to go west into the land of Canaan or the promised land. And yet as they walked around the city, they had seven days to do the six times once around and the seventh day seven times around, they would have looked at the walls and they would have seen it was on a big embankment. It was probably two, two extremely high walls like this and there would have been a person down the bottom like that looking at these massive walls thinking, how on earth are we going to do this? Well, you're going to do it by walking around it. And I want you to look. And as they walked around it and looked, they would have seen a testament to the power of mankind, to something that man had built. It was a strong, stable, sturdy structure. It would have been extremely hard to, to come up against the embattlements because it was all on a hill and it was all sloping. They were at an extreme disadvantage and it was something that man had built. I have done this. I have built this very strong, very well, and it is impressive. 
And as I realised, he said, I want you to stop, son, and walk around yourself and look, what do you see? I walk around and around. I mean, metaphorically. Look silly if you're going around around circles. <laughs> and I saw the walls. He said, what are the walls? Name them, son. What was Rahab's name? Pride. It was my pride. It's me. I've done, I've done this in your name, Lord. You might have done it in my name, but did I ask you to do it? Did I call you to do it? Did I empower you to do it? Did I lead you by my spirit to do that? And my desire for search for significance and for belonging and wanting to get out there and put myself out and to do this, it's actually called pride. Was I humble enough to say, Lord, I've got to let it go. I've got to... Lord, take me as I am. I can come no other way. Draw me, take me deeper into you and make my flesh life melt away. And that was the hardest point. So I'm sitting with the Lord and hearing him speak to me and saying, son, you've got to let me do it. Look, read the rest of the story. What happened? Six days they go around. The seventh day they go around seven times. There's a seventh time when you hear the priest's trumpet and you get the command, you shout. So they do. And the walls come tumbling down. Now, do you think it was their shout that made the wall fall over? Do you think that they have big rams or something that they smashed up against the wall? You know, there are some accounts that it may have been an earthquake. But even that, even if it was, that's a pretty good miracle. (laughs) To get it right at that time. He says, who made the walls fall down, son? Lord, you did. You made the walls fall down. Then, Lord, I can come no other way. I can't do it. I've just got to submit myself to you and I trust you're a good, good father. You've taken me. You've demonstrated how much you love me like this. So you've already established that for me through your son on the cross. I know you're a good, good father. I know you desire for me to have intimacy with you. I've cried out for that more and more and more. And as you draw me, you're calling for me to surrender me and allow you to do that work. Now, I can't explain how he does it. I can't explain how the walls all fell down. When you read the scriptures, it, talks, it says they then went up. The way the place was built, that was all they had to do. The walls went down which was impenetrable and hard to get up, they now just had a nice ramp that they could walk straight up and went to the city. Here's the clincher. They were all given instructions to what exactly was to be done. Do not take of an accursed thing that's in there. The gold, the silver, the iron, the bronze, it's dedicated to the Lord. Everything else must go. Now if we read that with our Western thinking and our... X amount of thousand years later to where we are today, we think, okay, don't really understand why God was, the way all those people were killed, don't really understand what's going on. I don't want to go into it now, but there was good reason for the Lord to be laying it out this way. 
that he gave instructions for that to happen because he knew if they, the Israelites, moved into that and started to make deals, started to water down what they believed, it will destroy them. It'll kill them. So they have this big victory and they think, whoa, this is great, all right. Uh, Forgive me if I get this wrong, but the way it's written is the way I'm reading the word and I think it's quite significant because the next city that they take is called I, A-I. So I'll go take I. (laughs) This is, oh, it's fine. Uh, Look, don't send us. Don't don't send 40-odd thousand. Just send several few thousand. We'll be able to take it. I mean, look how good we are. Look what we just did. So we'll go, we'll go take I. And off they go. And if we read the account, we see they actually get routed. About 36, 37 of the Israelites actually get killed and they run away. Now here's, here's the bit where I was saying about Joshua. Joshua's reaction. Remember, for 40-odd years, Joshua had walked with Moses. He'd seen Moses uh, in the tent of meeting outside the camp. Um, commune, have intimacy with the Father so that Joshua can receive the same anointing so he can understand he's in this, going to be in the same position. He knows the Father's heart. He knows what God is wanting to do, what this is about and how to talk with him. To the battle of Ai and Joshua's response. He's on the ground and, and right, rightfully so, he's on the ground and, and repenting and it's like Whoa, what's happened? What's happened? And I was just reading this morning as I read it again, and it's like, oh my Lord, I miss this. The Lord's saying, This is how I was reading it, how I was hearing it. He's saying, Joshua, what are you doing? Get up. You know my plan. You know my heart. You know me. Son, I've called you for a purpose. You know what are you doing down there. That's not the place for you right now. I need you to stand up. You know what I've got for you to conquer and for you to do. You know the promises I've given you. Why has this happened? You know. So it's not for the place to be on the knees. It's a place to be sorting out why that happened. And it's interesting that one, there was one incident that affected the nation, all the congregation, because of one person's attitude. So Joshua gets up and they call the assembly and they figure out. He says, someone's taken of an accursed thing. Again, so we go, through the, we go through the account and we find that there's one guy called Achan, whose name means trouble. And so he's singled out and um, he's, Joshua says to him, son, don't lie to me. Tell me what's happened. What have you done? He says, yes, I took it. Having been through, I mean, I don't know if he was born, so he might have been 40 in the wilderness, or he might have been 18. So he might have seen the whole, you know, coming out of Egypt. At least he would have seen the 40 years walking in the desert and the God's provision that he's seen the crossing over the Jordan. He's seen the walls come down, but now it's revealing his true heart nature. And he's revealing to me my true heart nature. Having been saved, having crossed over into the promised land, having tasted and seen that the Lord is good, having heard that the, you know, God is a good, good father and that he provides for me, having seen him touch my family, 
having seen him provide for me, that I go into a battle where the Lord has created a victory for me and, ooh, that looks nice. It says that he took a Babylonian robe. He took some silver. In the King James it talks about he took a tongue of gold. Just a little wedge, a little weight of gold. And hid it in his tent in my heart. And stored it in my heart. Until God said, don't you realise that this will kill you? It'll destroy you, Paul. If you keep this in your heart, it'll destroy you. But I need to have it exposed and I need to have it revealed because I'm a good, good father and I've got a purpose for you here. And so it was hard, a hard thing for those rights because Achan was found out. Achan, his family, his possessions, his belongings, his livestock were taken out and stoned. And that valley is called the valley of where they that's called the Valley of Ache or the Valley of Trouble. And there are places in Scripture where it talks about that the Lord leads us into the Valley of Achor. Why? Not because he's mean. Makes the one, oh, you, you tick me off, Paul, I'll send you into the Valley of Achor, that'll teach you. Don't do, won't do that in a hurry again, will you? No. I might do that. I might behave like that. In fact, I did. Until I understand... You're a good, good father. Your purposes for me are good. Your purposes are for me, not to destroy me. You want me to be successful in the promised land. So coming to the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble, where the pressure of God comes in, is to allow me to see what's in my heart. It's allow me to understand What's going on in here? Or it might do another thing. It might actually reveal the real work that he has done in here. So depending on, I was talking with Noah, what a dear sweet brother. What a joy to walk with him. And share, you know, usually once a month we meet up and we catch up and he was just sharing that, um, the other day as we talked. He says, they didn't realise. Sorry brother, punching your punchline. <laughs> didn't they realise in the wilderness, they were in the closest place with the Lord. He clothed them. He fed them. He watered them. He was right there with them in the desert. And if you have eyes to see, then you're not actually in the desert. You're close with God. So the valley of trouble that, that he was revealing to me, he says, Paul, I, though pressures might come on, it's not just to wear you out and to destroy your son is so that you might be aware of what's hidden in your heart. Now, it's either going to be one or the other. It'll either be a good treasure or a foul treasure. But where the heart is, the treasure is also. So that was, I guess really that was the, point of where I'd come to with the Lord and it was just a place then for me of just weeping and brokenness before the Lord. That's where he's speaking to me and realising, you know, that it was it for those who are probably around my age, <coughs> 38, <coughs> <laughs> well you've got to be 38 on the way to 53, so... <laughs> 
you would, you would know that song, you know, Jesus, take me as I am. I can come no other way. Take me deeper into you. Make my flesh life melt away. Make me like a precious stone, crystal clear and finally home. Life of Jesus shining through, bringing glory back to you. I would have sung that song heaps of times in my younger years, not so much here at the Rock, but... Uh, and yeah, yeah, great song, great song. And a lot of the songs, even the songs we were singing before as we were singing them, I was saying, Lord, these, these are powerful words. Even if I'm not in that place right now, to be singing prophetically over my life and over those that are around about me because I know you're a good, good father and I know these words are singing and speaking about your goodness for me and for those around about me. So I want to sing them prophetically and believe that you're doing that work in me because I can't come any other way. Here I am, Lord, arms wide uh, arms wide open and heart abandoned. All I am is yours. And here's the beauty of this. Here I am in this state. Each one of us can be saying this. I know you're in that state. That's why I came. I made you. And I know what you're like. I have to wait for you to get it right. I can come no other way. Now, in instant society, there's a cappuccino and it's done. And yet there are battles to be fought in the promised land because it's going to take time. So if I realise the biggest hurdle for me was pride. And my biggest prayer before the Lord as I, as I lay before him in the morning, I said, Lord, pride can have no place in me. It stinks and I've got to humble myself before you and remind myself before you, Lord. Pride has no place in your kingdom and it has no place in me. Keep me, Lord. Keep my heart humble before you that I might walk humbly before you because he seeks a humble and a contrite heart, not a proud and arrogant heart, however much I put in Jesus' name on the end of it. And from that he says, sure, fine, now trust me. Trust me, son. Trust I will speak to you. Trust I will work on the issues in your heart that I know about that you don't know yet. Trust that my heart for you is good, that I have a good purpose for you. Trust me as you walk with one another. Trust me as you can celebrate Kirk or, or Mal or Chris or Bella these dear sweet ones. As I see his outworking within their lives and can celebrate their successes and not have a jealousy that sits in my own heart going, oh, that should be me, I want that. Or I could clap and applause and say, amen. You know, in a walking race, when the toe succeeds, so does the head. Because they're all joined. You know? The head doesn't get jealous of the little toe. The little toe shouldn't get jealous of the head. We're one body. And so when there's a humbleness in heart and pride is out of the way, God's able to speak to us. So I pray, Father, I pray this morning that the essence of what I'm trying to communicate in your heart is that there's freedom found in you.
this freedom found in not striving to make something happen myself, not striving to figure you all out, not striving to have every theological T crossed and I dotted, not striving to go out and do a mighty work for God, but Lord, just striving to love and to know you for a humble heart. Lord, a commitment to have our arms wide open and a heart abandoned to you that you might speak to each one of us of any area where we, like Achan, may have taken something because we didn't know you as a good, good father and out of our fear and self and drive to self-sufficiency have grabbed something for ourselves to hold on to and held it as a treasure deep within our own hearts. Father, I ask that you would expose that within our hearts for our freedom, for our life, to come into the fullness of the full measure of God. Lord, that we can grab an understanding of the promised land within us, fighting the fights, fighting the battles, knowing that we do that in your strength as you lead, not as we strive to make happen. Father, I ask your blessing, I ask your Holy Spirit reveals to us, each one of us, what you need for us to see and to hear. Lord, I ask in your Son's precious and mighty name, in Jesus' name, Amen.